Hello, every loving one of you. Welcome to Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez, a podcast celebrating the cultural omnivores, all of us. Happy New Year! It's 2022, and we are starting this year with a brand new episode. I'm talking to a dear friend, Jenny Shank. Jenny's short story collection, Mixed Company, won the George Garrett Fiction Prize and was published by the Texas Review Press in November 2021. Her stories, essays, satire, and reviews have appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, The Onion, Poets and Writers Magazine, and a whole bunch of other wonderful places. She has taught creative writing at the University of Colorado, the Lighthouse Writers Workshop, and the Boulder Writing Studio. And she is on the faculty of the Mile High MFA at Regis University in Denver. I just want to take a moment, because we recorded this podcast a few weeks ago, and since then, Boulder and the Denver area are going through some stuff. So just want to send a huge shout out to all those peeps out there. Uh, We hope you're staying safe. We're so incredibly sorry and horrified at watching what's going on. But um, we love you, and, and we hope that things get better in 2022. For you and quite frankly for the rest of us because it's been it's been a lot and I'm I'm hoping for the best in this new year so sit back at least for a little bit and um, enjoy my talk with Jenny Shank we have history Um, we've known each other for a while and we met a long time ago before we, I mean, we were both already writing, but we were, I was really in the very beginnings of what I was doing. And you, I think had a little more experience because you were a journalist. I kept thinking back to those early conversations regarding Colorado and writing there. And you were sort of yearning for, for something more from Colorado or, or am I remembering that incorrectly? Like, remind me what, what your... For sure. I mean, like at the time, probably there wasn't that much going on, but there's more and more going on, especially I think it centers around Lighthouse Writers Workshop, which just has tons and tons of classes. And there, um, and I teach there usually in the in the summer in LitFest. But it's funny because they didn't know what was going to happen during the pandemic, like because their whole model is people coming to classes and it's actually grown because they switched to online. And now I think something like 25% of the people taking their classes are not in Denver, they're elsewhere. They're really charging ahead, like for example, in their diversity initiatives to hire more diverse faculty and support diverse writers and offer scholarships and um, like retreats just for, I think they have a writers of color retreat and things like that. So they're really trying to grow and change and keep going. When we met in Breadloaf, that was my very first experience in the writing world. I was very new to everything at that point. I was uh, somewhat shocked at how white it was, <laughs> to be yeah. frank. Coming from New York City, you know, in New Jersey, it, it, 
it did feel very um, not very diverse. And I understood that at that time, economics played a big role in that because a lot of these places were so expensive. That does matter, you know, for a lot of people because it just does. So that was part of it. In opening up this inclusivity wall, you know, just opening things up. And this is not just specific to Colorado. I think in most places, we understand that literature is not this sort of like point A, point Z. Mm-hmm. It's got all these tangentials. It's got all these different avenues. It, it Nothing is linear. Everything expands to something else. Everything branches out to something else. And part of that is because we are diverse, because we all come from different places, different experiences, different family structures. So I wondered about the sort of growth that's happening in in literature in Colorado. Yeah. um, So for one thing, it's it's a little hard to answer your question because I feel like I've been living in my basement for two years. So I'm like, what will it be like when I go outside of my basement? I don't really know. So all I can say is the things that I'm involved with are Lighthouse and also I teach at Regis, the Mile High MFA program. And definitely our program director, Andrea Rexilius, has been trying to overhaul everything and put in more inclusive practices in the workshop and things and hire more diverse faculty. And it's interesting, our faculty, because there's some people that are... um, kind of more experimental. There's some people that are more commercial and there's even some people that are like writing genre stuff, thrillers or mysteries or horror or things like that. And we try to just treat them all as equals. And so I think that that's part of what you're saying too. I like working with all kinds of people. You're open to perhaps encouraging a different way of approaching the writing problem, like just the idea of getting someone to write their story. I think, yeah, I think I always have been though, because, um, like I, I got the impression from some places, like, I don't know, maybe like what you said about Columbia or, you know, various places like that, that they would really snob you out if you weren't writing like literary fiction the way that I guess the New Yorker or something would conceive of it. Postmodernism was the big thing for yeah, my Intelligent it was. And I never had that, I think, because I'm in the West. So we don't, um, you don't have enough a big enough group of New Yorker snobs to get together and snob people out. So you get like, you're writing with the guy that's writing science fiction. He's in your group too, or, you know, so I feel like I was always really open and that's my job as a teacher is to like help the the student get what they want out. Not, not for me to put forward my type of writing. And not be shamed for not yeah. thinking of it first. Right. Because that part of that um, elitism elitist elitism <laughs> that <laughs> happens you know like in, in particular my school from my own experience it tends to it feels like they're shaming you <laughs> for yeah. not following that path you know like how dare you not write like pension and I've oh, had you know. students that are um, like fantasy writers and a lot of them have scars from because they're like really good writers and they were doing it in school and they have scars from being snobbed at their at their undergraduate institutions or wherever they went. And so one of my students, they just published their first fantasy book, which I'm really happy to say I worked on it when it was in thesis manuscript form. And what I noticed about fantasy writers, the ones I've had anyway, like they write great sentences. Their grammat- grammar is impeccable because they've read all the like classics of everything. Right. And they know how to craft a scene. They know how to use like 
drama and tension and make a really great chapter. And all I ever usually have to do with them is be like, what was the elf feeling here? You know, like make them go deeper into their characterizations. And that's all I really had to do. And so I find it refreshing to work with all different kinds of writers because they have different strengths. And I'll look at one and I'll be like, oh, I need to be as brave as this writer is, or I need to be as good at making a chapter as this writer is. And so then I just give my little hints about the things that I think could improve it. I mean, I think, you know, when I use like the term diversity, I think people automatically think I'm I'm only talking about, you know, race or ethnicity, but really it is what we're talking about. It is about styles of writing. You know, there's so many ways that you can tell a story. There's so many experiences that you can bring to the page. And that's really what diversity is about. It's about opening ourselves to all these different ways to tell a story, mm-hmm. which I, I hope that that is where this is all going. Like, it feels to me like it is. People are trying to not close a door on what used to be closed before. Yeah. You can't take away the strengths of one piece because it's not fitting the exact mold that you think it should fit. Mm-hmm. And also, we don't want it to die. Yeah. <laughs> right? we, don't want, we want people to keep reading. We want people to keep telling those stories. We don't want it to die, which... I don't know about you, but when I was in grad school, that was like the other big debate is like, oh, is the novel dead? You know, and I was like, that's such a stupid thing to like, no, it's not dead. You just can't tell the same freaking novel all the time. (laughs) I mean, you've been saying that forever, the death of the novel. And I mean, in a sense, it's never going to be like it was where, you know, there'd be a big book that everyone had read and, you know, people could make their living just from writing and things like that, or it'd be serialized like Dickens or Uh, something like that that's never coming back but it's still alive everything is still alive language does change you know and it changes because of everything that's going on around us Uh, but we we have been going through this pandemic (laughs) it does feel like we're sheltered in place or we're working more alone than ever even though we have the miracle of Zoom and, and all that stuff, it, it does feel insulated. And you have a book that's out and we're still in this pandemic. Yep. So I just wanted to like hear about how's it going for you, like trying to promote this book and what challenges you've been facing. It's a total surprise that I have a book out this year because I went in, um, the pandemic happened, started March, what year was 2020. that? 2020. <laughs> <laughs> you know thrown out of school there was no school for the entire year and so I ended up just I had no time to write for that entire year I was I was helping mostly my son because he's younger with online schooling because he just couldn't do it I mean like he couldn't learn from a zoom screen so I would you know read what he was reading I got to read a lot of great books with him and cool things that they were studying I just did everything with him and talked about it and that helped him a lot more learning it than just with a zoom and he only like even met 12 people at his school because they were like in cohorts Mm. Um, it was a brand new school he didn't know anyone and so I was so busy for half the day I would do that and then half the day I would do the work that I needed for money and I was I was frustrated because I was like like I had all these goals writing goals for that year before the pandemic came in and took it away and then I was just like well what is there anything that I have time to do? And I was like, well, I have this story collection. I could probably find some time to submit it to places. I checked out that 
that really great feature in Entropy magazine. It's too bad Entropy is going down now, but that where to submit. And it was just like an exhaustive list of all these small presses that had open calls for short story manuscripts, all kinds of manuscripts. So I said, okay, I have no time. I'm like busy with pandemic teaching and trying to like make money. And, uh, but I have enough time to just submit my manuscript. I just took that year and I started sending it kind of like brushing your teeth, you know, like, okay, this is, this deadline is coming up. I'll put it in no expectation, no hope really, you know, so like brushing my teeth, I kept submitting my short story collection. And then I won this, this contest from Texas Review Press. And they told me in February, oh, we're going to publish it. We're going to publish it this year in October. And I'm like, whoa, because like last time it took several years when I had a book under contract. It was a big surprise that it was going to be published this year and a really great surprise. And I really loved working with Texas Review Press. They had... Um, I love the cover design they gave me. Like my last book, I didn't even really get any say in what the cover design was. And it ended up having this image on it that caused libraries across the nation to miscategorize it as a murder mystery. Oh, oh. <laughs> I know. which I have no problem with murder mysteries. But like, if you go to my book looking for like a mystery and you're going to be like, this sucks. And, you know, some of my Amazon reviews reflect that. Oh, that- no. <laughs> So, so I was really glad that I got a good cover design and then it was supposed to come out in like October 15th, but then they told me, and so I set everything up because um, it's definitely with a small press, it's like you're doing, you do pretty much everything on your own. There's a publicist there, but she's a grad student. She's busy with her own work. And so I could ask her to like send a copy to someone, but I was mostly doing all the groundwork of emailing people and setting things up. So I set up these readings around town. Um, for October. And um, then they told me, oh, the book isn't going to be ready until November 17th. And I was like, oh, no. Like, what do I do? Because I just didn't want to annoy people again, like cancel and then reschedule. So I was like, okay, is there any other option? And the publisher, um, they were really good. They said, we think we can talk to the printer and they can um, give you some books directly from them in advance. So you can just run your events. So I was back to my like indie author days where I had to purchase my own books and then like use consignment to sell it. (laughs) It's like a lot of work, man, like doing all this stuff. But I was glad to have salvaged my events and like the press that went along with it. Then the book finally came out. I was almost done with like all my events when the book came out. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of a whirlwind, crazy year where I feel like I need to build in some time at the end of the year to just like reflect on what what has happened? I feel like I've washed up on shore with the book, which I never, I started January last year. No idea that that would happen. It's hard. Books are hard. You know, they're hard to birth (laughs) and then they're hard to raise because that's what you're doing when you're promoting them. You're raising your book. Yeah. It's so funny when you're trying to get it across the finish line. It's just, you feel like you keep going back to the start because you're like, okay, read it again. Make sure the copy edits are in. Oh, did you mess something up? Did you get the permission for that quote? Uh, <laughs> all that. So you've been out there, you've been promoting the book, you're probably exhausted, but you're also sort of like in this pandemic world. Let's talk about the the, the, the book itself now, because I wanted to get into it a little bit. I have like, you know, I was reading it. And of course, some of the stories I already, I had read before. Yeah. A long time ago. <laughs> and um, so this is, a collection of stories that you've been working on for a number of years. The United States of America 
has been going through this revolution mm -hmm. over the last, I would say since 2012, I would say the second Obama administration, shit got crazy, <laughs> you know, and I want to talk about that. I want to talk how that has that played a role in how you have gone back to these stories in your revision of these stories? Yes. I mean, I definitely, yeah, I definitely, they're not the same versions probably that I published when I, they were originally published. I definitely was checking them all with through my contemporary mindset. On the other hand, what's really interesting is, so the way I grew up, I was in Denver public schools during the era of court-ordered busing for racial integration. So I was bused, like when I was really little, starting at six years old, I was bused to a neighborhood that was mostly Mexican-American. And the school I went to was like, had been forged in the Chicano rights movement. And Denver was really big in that. And so there were like Aztec murals on the wall. And we did a lot of stuff in Spanish. And we had like a Mercado. And uh, we had all kinds of stuff that was, and that was like, most of it was like Mexican cultural type stuff that we were enriched with. And then, so I went there for three years and then three years, the, those kids were bussed over to my neighborhood. And then after that, I kind of never saw those kids again. I was bused to Northeast Denver, a uh, predominantly black neighborhood. And that was like early nineties. That was when NWA public enemy were coming out and they weren't playing that music on the radio in Denver yet. And so I was getting it, you know, through school and it really kind of blew my mind. And so I was immersed in all kinds of different cultures growing up. And one thing I think about today is oftentimes when I tell people about my background, they're like, what? Like, they don't even get it. They're like, wait, did you like, did they make you take the bus? And I was like, yeah. I mean, that was, they're like, did you have a choice of like which public school to go to? I'm like, no, there was no choice. Like we were assigned where we went. Cause I think it's so different now where everyone like everyone goes around and visits schools and then like applies for them through lotteries and no one is forced anywhere now which is good to some extent but but I think schools have become really segregated and a background like mine is really rare for places that are not as diverse as like New York City like New York City yeah you're going to be among diversity wherever you go almost but like a lot of people that are interviewing me about this book in Denver they were like you know Denver has a reputation as just being like really white and your stories they have non-white people in like every single one of them and I'm like yes like that was my Denver <laughs> that's how I saw it in some ways you're living in two worlds as a kid because you have your school world yeah and then you have your home life was home different like how was your home life different from school? yeah it was very different because my parents um were from Nebraska and my mom's background is like when I was reading Little House on the Prairie to my daughter and it would be like, cause my mom didn't have running water. She was on a farm with nine, oh. nine siblings. Um, she didn't have like a bathroom in the house until like fourth grade. So like when you read Little House on the Prairie, a lot of the stuff is from the 1800s in there. I'd be like, Oh yeah, mom was like this too. <laughs> so they are, their background is very rural. My mom's family were like Czech immigrants. And I think part of the reason they sent me to the school that I went to is because she went to a one-room schoolhouse in Nebraska, and she never had a classmate in her grade until she got to seventh grade. And she really hated that. She's like, I want to be with someone besides my siblings. And so 
when they moved to Denver, it was like early eighties. It was like a economic problem. They had to leave Nebraska to find work. And they went, they, that meant that they had missed all the divisiveness that was, that was around busing. Like before they got there, there was all kinds of protests and people fighting and, you know, racial um, conflict at the schools and stuff. By the time they got there, it had all settled down. All the whites that were going to leave, leave the district had left. White flight had already happened. They moved into this neighborhood because my aunt and uncle were there and they're like, okay, what's the public school? It was across town. And they're like, oh, oh, that's unusual. But, you know, we're from, we don't know any different. (laughs) And my mom went and visited it. And she's like, you know, there's like lots of kids. The teachers seem enthusiastic. It's a nice school. You know, she'll have a lot of people in her class. (laughs) Let's just send them there. Plus it's free. That's kind of my background. And I was learning, especially popular culture was all from my, my school friends because it was so different than what, what my parents listened to at home. Like my dad likes the Rolling Stones, you know, classic rock, stuff like that. And so I got all kinds of music and, and just like what I like to watch. It's funny because like I talked to people in the night that grew up like I did and they have all, they all watch like Dawson's Creek and Beverly Hills, 90210 and stuff. I've never seen a, seen a single episode of any of those because we were watching like in living color, we were, you know, um, the real world. That was a big one. So I was like really just watching what my black friends were watching and listening to what they were watching. So I have this kind of mixed up cultural heritage, I would say. Yes, but you also, I mean, I'm trying to like, like I'm, I'm trying to think of your childhood in terms of the two worlds because you know you you're you're also at home and I'm, I would assume you have neighborhood friends as well, right? Yeah, but my neighborhood was somewhat integrated too. Like on the mm. bus out of that neighborhood, it would be like half white and half black kids on the bus. So what it wasn't like you were going from, uh, you know, Gross Point kind of like neighborhood to like the inner city, you know, to to school. And Denver was kind of like, you know, it was a cow town. It was like the oil bust happened in the 80s and a lot of people left to go to Texas. So So it was a transitioning city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, Um, you know, because I think region matters when when you when you talk about stories that come from a place where um, when you talk about busing, for instance, busing meant something different here in the Northeast because they had it, too. Yeah, like you're describing yeah, it right. was like the terrible um, fights and protests and things like that. And there was a little bit of that in Denver. Like in before I got there in the late 70s, there was a bombing at the bus depot when they were proposing this. You know, so there was a little bit of that, but it kind of like blew over quicker, I think. And I don't remember any racial fights. I remember fights, but not based on race. <laughs> Nothing really based on, oh, you're from that side of town. Go away. And music is coinciding, like hip hop, really. I mean, we're talking about the 90s here. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I felt like I grew up with (laughs) hip hop by going to those schools, which I wouldn't have if I had just been in my neighborhood. Like, I remember, I don't know, first or second grade, like Michael Jackson came to town. (laughs) I don't know, that's hip hop. It's like transitional between (laughs) R&B and um, the talent show, trying out for the talent show. All anyone was doing was breakdancing. It was like one breakdance group after another, people moonwalking across the stage for like an hour. And everyone like formed into crews. Like everyone had their breakdance crew. 
And that was in Denver, you know, in that time. So even though it was all happening in New York, it was really um, spreading out throughout the country and not through, we didn't have the channels like we do now or it was internet or anything. It was like, oh, somebody's uncle gave me this mixtape, showed me this move, like, (laughs) and that's how it was spreading kind of. Because in New York, you know, I mean, we're talking about the mainstreaming of hip hop that happened in the 90s. And that's when it started spreading everywhere. But even during that period in New York, uh, mixtapes were very popular. And so what you're describing about finding out from uncles, we were also finding out underground hip hop. Yeah. From these like places that because there was no actual mainstream place that featured this stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's just interesting to me how you know, this underground sort of eventually comes up and spreads. Yeah. And then, I mean, well, like in the, I don't remember if it was mid to late eighties and there was like a McDonald's commercial with, with break dancers, you know, so it got, it got commodified really quickly, <laughs> but. It did, but it also changed, you know, like it kept changing, which is why it's still around. And it's still so powerful. I think mm-hmm. um, probably not as much as in the nineties. I think that was the yeah. pinnacle, but. but then also like, so the nineties, I remember the gangster rap and the things that uh, NWA and public enemy were talking about, it really, I could see how it connected with my um, classmates in a way that other music just didn't see their lives. I mean, cause that was during the crack epidemic. There was, there were like crack houses across the street from my um, middle school. You know, there was violence, there were gangs. It was like, my school was a crip school. Um, people were getting shot, you know? So this music spoke to them in a way that anything else like available on the radios in Denver at that time um, didn't and so I don't know I think I could appreciate it in that way even though it it wasn't me like I was going home and my neighborhood was safe and there weren't crack houses there and stuff but I could see how my friends how this music was really important to them so I know like the stories that there are some stories obviously in the collection that are based on your own experiences Mm, yeah a lot of them have at least a sprinkling of it. It's funny because like when I write a novel, I kind of make up the entire thing because it's like a novel is a big canvas to work on. But with stories, I grab something that I've mm, wondered about. Interesting. Yeah. I grab something I've wondered about and I work with it. And it gets fictionalized as I work with it. And usually um the character then usually there's no character, there's nobody that's going to read this book and say, oh, that's me. Um, the characters are all changed, but a lot of the situations or settings are taken from my life for sure. Again, because you probably started, a, you know, a story, let's say in 2012, mm-hmm. and you've been working on it for a while. It's been published at the same time, and you've still been working on it for in order to get a book ready. Do you feel that you're coming back to it with a different set of eyes or a different insight and do you resist the urge to correct anything or do you try to like? Um, that's a good question. Yeah. So I do, because I think, I think I was somewhat naive about the world, the way I grew up, because <laughs> we were taught like Martin Luther King's dream, like we're equal. And I believe that I believe that we were equal and I never, you know, thought that racists would like emerge again. But then I'm now I know, of course, they were always there. They were always there. I just wasn't seeing it because of where I was, you know, the teachers I had, the schools I went to, spoken of as something in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
I come to it with that, like recognizing my own naivete. And a lot of people that have interviewed me have, or have reviewed it, have pointed out, and I think this is true. So I knew that I didn't want to write from the perspective of a non-white person, because I felt like that's not my place to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also knew I didn't want to, like, it seems like one response as a book reviewer that I've been seeing by white writers to this moment is to set their work in time periods and places where there are no people of color at all so that they won't get in trouble with it. You know, yeah, that's yeah. the response. And I'm like, okay, that is a response, but given my, who I am, I don't think that that would feel true for me. There's gotta be all kinds of people in my stories, mm-hmm. but I've got to do it in a respectful way. And so I usually have a protagonist who's white, who is in a world that's not totally white. And sometimes that protagonist has something that she wants, like, oh, she wants to tutor somebody or help somebody out. And almost always it's like um, she realizes that the person, the other people were helping her or she's been ridiculous or she had a misconception. Um, And like, I think someone wrote about it. It's like, it's like they go in, they kind of want to be like a white savior, but they quickly realize that that's not, that doesn't exist. And they are never white saviors, which I'm glad because I never wanted that to be what happened. And I think it kind of probably that outcome plays into my confusion over having grown up in what I thought was like a egalitarian society. Like that's at least the lessons I was taught at school. I mean, I was learning about the Aztecs and Tenochtitlan and stuff my whole growing up. And I never thought about it as a theory that was like indoctrinating me by teaching some other culture. I was like, this is what we learn. There's definitely confusion in my head over it. But I, in the fiction, I just try to show people reaching out to each other. And oftentimes, you know, my fiction is funny a lot. So oftentimes it's awkward. Someone's making a blunder and that's how they're kind of learning and growing. But I don't want to write fiction where I'm just being careful not yeah. to not to include other people so I don't offend anyone across the line I'd rather I'd rather get it wrong be like canceled <laughs> than not to try you know I, I want I want to be brave I mean a lot of times when I was reading the stories it felt like you were holding a mirror and I was invited in as a witness or invited to recognize something that I also do. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had a feeling of that awareness in some of the stories. And usually the thing that I felt was I recognized insecurity in myself, mm-hmm. the sort of need to try to fix things, mm-hmm. but then realizing why am I taking all this on? I can't possibly fix this, but I see it, but somehow I can't get it off my head. But yet yeah. it's not my place sometimes to fix it. So I, I felt all that in the stories, which I think, you know, the, the white savior thing, I think there's one particular story where I, I thought, oh no, Jenny, you're going to the white savior territory, which was the lineman, right? Oh, the lineman, yeah. Oh, but they like- Yeah, and <laughs> then that story the completely end. turns. And I hope by the end you saw like- <laughs> Yes. They were the saviors. Yes. <laughs> guys. Yeah. But it, but it's it's there's this sort of like um, I think what you're doing is very honest. You know, you're going in there, you're just basically putting it out there and saying, "Hey, 
you know, this, this is it and it's not perfect. And I'm, I know it's not perfect. I wish it worked perfect, but I know I can't make it perfect. <laughs> and I want you just to see it, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's the experience I took from it. That's accurate. I mean, that's my, my feeling. It's like, well, you just, I mean, when I pour through things, incidents in my past or whatever, and then I'll realize, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or, you know, you think you're walking around enlightened, like with good intentions all the time, but then something happens and you're like, oh, that was really dumb of me to say, or I didn't realize this. And so that's kind of what my stories are, a chronicle of my blunders. And, and everything that's been going on with the world, especially in the last um, two and a half years, you know, I really had to check myself mm-hmm. and, and, you know, just really confirm some of the things that I've been doing in the past and go, oh, oh, <laughs> like, okay, I have been complicit in this. Because you have to live at walking, you know, full speed. you like, you, you respond to things in the moment, you do what you have to do to get your work done and get through the day. And, but then later on, like when you're writing, when you're being contemplative, you have a chance to think, oh, should I have done that? Did I say that wrong? And that's what I kind of examine in my stories, sort of. It's, it's examining those moments that you're not sure if you were, you, you think of yourself as a good guy, but were you a good guy? I don't know. <laughs> but also I think as writers, um, one of the privileges that we experience is that, especially with short stories, when you start that story, you sort of have a question in your head mm-hmm. and then you don't quite see the question clearly and you start to write mm-hmm. and all of a sudden things emerge and maybe some of it you already had behind your head and, you know, you put it on paper and some of it is surprising to you. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that happens to you and that that question sort of changes? Yeah. I think it's all, and it's all questions. Like if you had a if you had a thesis to say, that would be a terrible story. Like yeah. if you had something concrete that you wanted to say, and you're just using these characters to do it, that doesn't work. The, it's always got to start with the question. And I think you're questioning throughout as you put your characters in motion. And then if you do a good enough job um, putting your observations and I guess, subconscious into these characters, they're going to surprise you with how things turn out. And I, and I don't feel like the the question is totally answered, but maybe maybe sometimes it is a little bit. And usually the answer is, wow, I was an ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually the answer. I mean, I think the best stories don't answer anything. They just sort yeah. of open up the question in a way that you're like, didn't think about, you know, that, oh, right. I didn't even realize that other side of things, you know, I think those are the best stories for me anyway, as a reader. No, I agree. Like, I don't think, I don't think you're going to stories for like a moral or a lesson or you're not going for an editorial. You're going for questions that maybe you had to, and you're going for atmosphere and details and to be immersed in a different world. And to see that world a certain way for that little period of time. Right. Mm-hmm. You're one of these writers that writes fiction, you write short stories, you you work on novels. Mm-hmm. You also have a journalist side to you. Yeah. How do those three worlds sort of like interact for you in your writing? Or do they even interact? Oh, well, sort of, because like I'm always, I guess it, I'm always doing something. I always have an assignment for a book review. 
and I'm always got a larger project going on underneath, usually a novel. And then always something happens. Like this year, I wrote an essay that was ended up in the Washington Post about uh, the mass shooting that happened at my grocery store at King Supers. And um, so something like that is intruding and I can use my kind of journalist skills to like quickly get my feelings on the page and like quickly submit it while it's still in the news cycle. I mean, that sounds crass, but writing that essay, I got so much response from my neighbors and people in my community that mm. they said that I expressed what that, what that grocery store meant to them and the people in it and stuff. And so it felt like, okay, that's why I'm writing. Cause all these people that gave me emails and, and told me about it. And then there was one beggar there. Um, she's, she had an intellectual disability and she was the bagger there forever. Mm-hmm. And so everyone in town knew her and Terry is her name. And I knew her. And that's probably the person who died that I knew the best. I wrote about her in the article. And, and so people have contacted me and been like, Oh, in your essay, you talked about Terry. And I just thought you might not want to know that her friend is now at this other store and she's doing okay. And, you know, people tell me, Oh, I thought you'd want to know that um, CU now has a scholarship named after Terry because she loved the the marching band at the university of Colorado. She would always go watch them perform. And now they have a scholarship named for her for a marching band student. Wow. That's great. And the people, because I expressed the community's emotions in my own way, people tell me about this. So I like that. Um, I went way off track with your question, but it comes in. So I'm always trying to do some fiction, but then the journalism part clicks on and I need to either make money and go like write a book review or something for pay, or I just quickly can um, express a, like a news story, my reaction to an, through an essay to something going on. But then there are times where I feel like I've gotten too far away from my fiction. I haven't been making good progress. So like this next year, because I've been so busy with all this other stuff, I'm like, I really want to go and fix this novel (laughs) that I have working on for a long time. And I wonder, what do I do? I just have to like not make that much money. (laughs) I think let's see if I can live off of a little bit less so that I can finish this book. It does sound, I mean, don't, don't get offended. Schizophrenic in a way, because (laughs) you have this, um, deadline based type of writing where you just have to get it down and get it there at a certain point and that doesn't leave a lot of room for looking at it and playing with it and being more introspective like you would in fiction right where you have yeah. this time really fiction writing takes place during the editing process I think I don't think composing is fiction writing I yeah. think composing is getting it down on the page mm-hmm. but the real work is how do I make this alive Mm-hmm. you know whereas I would imagine journalism is, is a different head right it is a different head but I think I, I've taught a class where I thought okay this is what you fiction writers can learn from <laughs> journalism I feel like there's two types of writers there's one type that's like writing really fast and throwing it out there like wanting to get it published like really like maybe too quick and I feel like the system is self-correcting for that because they'll just get rejected because it's not good but there's another type of writer that takes forever on something and just never it's like too perfectionist never wants to submit it never wants to send it out there's no correction for that at all and i've worked with some students where i'm like this is great this chapter of your your memoir you should publish this right now and and i kind of nudge them and i even like offer to nominate them for something or you know and they're like oh 
I'm not ready yet. So I think if you have a little bit of the journalist part of you, you'll say there's a chance that it's not ready, but it's the best I can make it now. So I can start submitting it, but you got to, at some point, put it out there. It's never going to be perfect. So that's, I think what journalism helps me with. Another thing among some literary writers that they'll get feedback from the editor and they'll be like, it's my work. You know, I'm like, what? It's you so know, because precious, I, yeah, because yeah, I've been doing collaborative writing in, in some ways for such a long time where it's always like, oh, yeah, you got to listen to at least some of what your editor says. Um, you don't have to cave on everything. You definitely should consider each thing and decide how you feel about it. But but it does help you to be flexible like that and work with another person in getting it just right. Yeah, I think when it comes to literary writers, sometimes it, the work is very precious. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to it's hard to hear that the little wordplay that you were so proud of is not really landing. <laughs> you yeah. know that that that's hard to hear. But in terms of like like you you mentioned that you're working on a novel that you you want to go get back to, what is inspiring to you for for a fictional work? Like, do you just work straight from the top of your head and and you come up with something, or is there some something in the world or some philosophy or some idea that kind of prompts you? Like I've had this inkling or I, of another novel I want to write. And it just kind of um, has to do with my Czech farming immigrant um, forebears. Oh, awesome. We discovered I had this relative that she was a, she was um, like the only woman in my extended Catholic family that didn't have kids. And she was like a rodeo writer, trick writer. And so I kind of looked into her history and her brothers were in the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. And so I'm kind of just like, oh, I'm interested in this. So I'm going towards it aside. I'm not putting any pressure toward it because I'm directing my attention towards this other novel I want to finish. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it works for me. I think fiction has a little bit of a magical component to it. Whereas like journalism or like a book review, you can make yourself sit down and do it. Maybe it's not going to be the best ever if you force your way through it, but I feel like fiction has to come from a little bit of that voices in your head or, or, or something like that. Sort of like an obsession, but you can't really understand what the obsession is until you start working it out. Yeah, that's right. You get, you're like, why am I so interested in this thing? This cowgirl relative. <laughs> I don't know. I just have to go there and learn more about it. So I'm I'm going to go back to Colorado because that's your home base. And I want to kind of, ask about how you see things are like we talked about how things have opened up but what are you seeing that's that's exciting right now out there like is there certain types of writers that are being recognized a little more or their works are out there that are different from the past when I started out writing my first novel I there were just not that many books set in Denver or about Colorado there were a lot of writers here, but they seemed to like come from elsewhere and then write about wherever they were from. A book that I really loved that came out a couple years ago, um, Cali Fajardo Ansin's, um, Sabrina and Karina. It's all most, a lot of it's set in Denver. And she also grew up in, I think, in the Denver public schools like I did. So that was cool to see. One of my colleagues at Regis is Stephen Dunn. He won the Whiting Award, was it last year? And he, he mostly sets his stuff in West Virginia, but it's really exciting to have such an um, innovative writer in town. And there's all kinds of 
people around him, like more exper experimental writers doing cool things. Um, one of my students, Hillary Leftwich, she like she was barely my student. She was just getting the degree. She was already like awesome <laughs> publishing and everything. And she has her second book on the way. And she writes mostly flash, flash fiction and flash nonfiction. And um, so there are people like like Stephen and Hillary and um, other people in town that are doing cool things with experimental forms. Um, they're just making like this literary ecosystem through readings, local publications and things like that. One of my students that I'm I'm going to be on a panel with for um, we have a residency at Regis, our January residency. Um, I'm going to get to be on a panel with two of my former students who have published books in the last year. And I mentioned already Shannon Blair is one of them. And then um, another one, Mikhail Cole, she is, oh, actually, sorry, they, sorry. There was a pronoun shift recently. And sometimes my brain makes a problem. Oh, no. we're, uh, we're 20th century babes. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> older and has trouble. So they are starring a like avant-garde art night around town. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So there are people doing really cool things around like that. But then there's, on the other hand, there are people like Callie and, I don't know, Peter Heller. There are people that are publishing major press books that, that are from here too. And I'm not sure where I fit. I'm kind of like, I, I mean, I publish with small presses, so I guess I, I get to be on that team. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us, Jenny. And um, I want to really hear parts of your book. So I'm going to give you a, a few minutes to kind of like maybe read a piece or two. Okay. So the setup is these, this older white, like aging hippie couple from Boulder has adopted a black son. And as he grows up, when he's a teenager, he's starting to, you know, just have normal teenage outbursts. but the, the parents kind of don't know how much of it is just normal teenager or how much it, it, if it is because we are racially different and they're trying to bond with him. And they're also pretty clueless <laughs> about what would be a good thing to bond over. So they notice that his favorite uh, group is a Wu-Tang Clan and they, they decide, oh, let's, let's get tickets to go see the Wu-Tang Clan for his birthday all together. And they have to go all together because of the underage rules. I think he's turning... 14 or something you have to go with the parent until you're 16 and I'm going to start just when they get to the entrance and um Gwen that's the that's the protagonist the mom she has something in her purse like a nail file or something that's not going to be allowed in so she has to go back to the car but when she does that Hugh her son just like goes in he's like oh this is a good chance to ditch my parents <laughs> so I'm going to start when she gets back to the concert She's kind of on the balcony watching him, watching her son try to make his way forward in the crowd. Just as Hugh was about to breach the packed space within a 15 foot radius of the stage, a woman squeezed in next to Gwen, jostling her and making her lose track of Hugh. Quit hogging this good view, the woman said. I drove all the way from Pueblo and I had to beg my sister to watch my kids. I'm not gonna miss anything. The woman wore thick black eyeliner and had a Wu-Tang tattoo on her bared shoulder, a sharp, angry W that resembled a bat. Gwen nodded and smiled, but then the house lights dimmed. The Wu-Tang clan burst from backstage. The music started and the woman went absolutely insane, grinding her hips in a roving semicircle and flailing her arms, repeatedly smacking Gwen in the glasses. 
trying to bump her back from the balcony. Gwen gripped the railing and attempted to maintain her space so she could watch Hugh. Gwen had never experienced such bass before, emanating from the demonic speakers stacked to the rafters, pounding in her chest so hard her heartbeat was obscured. Gwen could sense the damage she was doing to her hearing and believe she could pinpoint the precise moment each of the cilia in her inner ear trembled and was lost. The members of the Wu-Tang Clan kept emerging from and retreating into the wings, strutting back and forth across the stage, pumping their arms, never standing still or remaining assembled long enough for Gwen to make an accurate count of them. Every time a new one appeared, the crowd's already seismic roar increased, and it seemed to Gwen that each successive member was somehow even more famous and beloved than the last. Whenever Gwen thought she had gained a fix on Hugh, the woman would slam into her with her hip, disguising the assault as a dance move. It was tiring to sustain her position in the face of this onslaught, and about midway through the fifth song, Gwen gave up and retreated to the bathroom. The moment Gwen vacated her spot, the woman assumed it, raising her arms aloft and throwing up the same pro-Wu-Tang hand gestures that others in the crowd were making. Jenny? Yes. Real. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking with me today. That was fun. That was such a wonderful chat. Thank you so much to Jenny Shank for taking the time to talk to me. You can find out more about Jenny at her website, JennyShank.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at Jenny Shank. I hope you will join me next time. Remember to take a minute to like and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Audible, and a bunch of other places. Thanks all for listening. Happy New Year, take care, and flowers. Mm -hmm.